Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 107. On today's episode, we're talking about Jesus and ritual purity with Dr. Matthew Thiessen. Dr. Matthew Thiessen is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of the book that we are discussing here today, Jesus and the Forces of Death, The Gospel's Portrayal of Ritual Impurity Within First Century Judaism, published by Baker. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Jennifer Guo, Dr. Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Chris and Jen, we're kicking off this series on Christian anti-Judaism, and this is a great way to begin with Dr. Thiessen and discussing ritual impurity. What were some of the takeaways that you two had about our conversation with Dr. Thiessen? For me, um, Dr. Thiessen's book, Jesus and the Forces of Death, was um, one, it's one of the uh, one of the most enjoyable books I've read in, in the last few years. I think it was really just helpful to improve my own categories on Jesus's ministry, whether he's uh, exercising demons, healing various conditions. In, in my readings and in the inherited readings that I've had, these are usually just seen in terms of sin and compassion and Jesus doing miraculous things. And Dr. Thiessen's book, I think, improves our categories in terms of characterizing what Jesus is doing um, in terms of ritual purity, in terms of very Jewish concerns that the, the gospel writers were, I think, clearly uh, intending to, to flag up and highlight. And so that was uh, just really a helpful um, sort of study in, in, in bringing these things to light. Yeah, I think this book demonstrates really, really well how Jesus did not disregard or abolish, you know, the laws concerning ritual impurity. I think even some of us who might know, okay, Jesus was a Jew, when it comes to specific texts, at least for myself, I mean, I haven't studied these issues, you know, in all these gospel texts, even though I believe this. And so seeing Dr. Thiessen work through these issues through all of these texts, is really, really helpful. And something that I really appreciate about this book is that it's so uh, academically rigorous in terms of all the ancient texts and whatnot, but I still think that it's really accessible. And so I hope that a lot of people in the church read this book. And I think that, yeah, it would really help with just some of the common Christian caricatures of Judaism in the world. All right, and here's our conversation with Dr. Tisa. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Thiessen. Thanks for having me. So in this conversation that we're kicking off about Christian anti-Judaism, one of the things that we're really interested in is how Christians tend to misrepresent or misunderstand ancient Judaism, kind of based in many ways on the reading of the New Testament. And I think a great place to start, of course, is with Jesus's relationship to Judaism. So considering your recent book, Jesus and the Forces of Death, one of the things that you discuss is ritual purity of ancient Judaism. Can you tell us a little bit about the thesis of that book, how it fits in relationship to broader scholarship as a way to kick off this conversation? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think probably most of our listeners and maybe most of us, uh, well, on this on this uh, Zoom meeting 
were uh, raised in or were relatively quickly sort of uh, trained in a way of reading the Gospels that, that projects Jesus as abolishing or, or doing away with the Jewish law, um, which of course isn't what he says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, but doing away with especially those aspects of the law that modern Christians and Christians down through most of Christian history have generally uh, ignored uh, or rejected themselves. And so um, when I was reading my dissertation, I sort of fell into the, the, the rabbit hole of um, ancient ritual purity systems, looking at Leviticus and the work of Jacob Milgram, Mary Douglas, and other people. And it, it struck me that uh, I had never noticed that Jesus deals with the three types of ritual purity or the three sources of ritual purity that exist in Jewish ritual purity systems. And so my thesis, uh, as, I, as I realized this and started working on it, my thesis is each of these encounters, uh, Jesus doesn't come out and say, oh, ritual impurities, you know, doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. It's he encounters people with ritual impurity. And at the end of every encounter, uh, the ritual impurity is, is, or the source of the ritual impurity, at least, is gone. It's, it's left their bodies. And so it seemed to me a remarkable uh, piece of evidence in the, in the argument about Jesus and the Jewish law that, well, he's not saying it's irrelevant or abolished or no longer important. It's so important he's going to deal with ritual impurity, cleansing these people who have this, this, these sources. Dr. Thiessen, you brought up uh, uh, reading Milgram and Mary Douglas, and I smiled when I read some of that part of your foreword to the book, um, because that was a lot of my experience as well. I should have been reading um, stuff that was more on point to my thesis, and I uh, kept finding myself uh, going down this black hole, as, you, as you'd say, uh, reading uh, Milgram and the priestly portrait of Dorian Gray, and a lot of these like just really insightful aspects of, of Old Testament that um, really is just fascinating. And, uh, and obviously Old Testament scholars have been banging this drum for, for, for many years. Um, and it's, it's, it's good to see a lot of these insights make their way into New Testament studies on, on, on somewhat of a, a broader level. And uh, it's really uh, good and refreshing to see that in your work, in your recent book, Dr. Thiessen. Thanks, Chris. I guess I guess I just I would say you know you called it I called it a rabbit hole you called it a black hole which you know I think it was just a slip, but I think that's one of the things about studying that sometimes you just you need to read sort of uselessly, and and without direction sometimes to find things you don't know, that then all of a sudden turn the light onto a text you know well and all of a sudden you see it in a new light so. We're working on the New Testament, but who knows what other texts are going to shed light on texts that have been read over and over and over again and written on over and over and over again. And all it takes sometimes is just the right set of texts read at even like the right moment in time uh, to, to, to all of a sudden reveal something that, that, you know, maybe others haven't seen and you haven't seen before. So um, I guess I'm sort of preaching about how to, how to do some research. Obviously, we have to stay focused on what we do, but there's also a time for just reading broadly and sort of, uh, I think a friend of mine calls it reading promiscuously. Um, so. <laughs> Dr. Thiessen, one of the parts in the book that I found particularly impactful in terms of just um, typical Christian caricatures of ancient Judaism and, and whatnot is the part where you talk about how in um, ancient Jewish law, there actually wasn't this pitting of compassion and and concern for preservation of life, as opposed to following the laws and the commandments. And I think that 
it's really helpful because you kind of hear that rhetoric a lot um, in just popular Christian discourse. So I was wondering if you'd be willing to tell our listeners a little bit more about that as yeah. far as your book and the thesis goes. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I always go back in my, as soon as someone asked me a question around this, I always go back to the American presidential election back in uh, 2004, if I remember correctly. Uh, and, and the question about Jesus as the philosopher, favorite philosopher of Bush, um, and that love of neighbor is, is, was Bush's answer. And so it was, was it Kerry he ran against in 04? Uh, Kerry as well, I think. And gave that answer. And I thought, I mean, sure, fine, great. It wasn't Jesus who said, I mean, Jesus does say it, but he's quoting. Um, and it's, you know, laughable. That's, well, it's the holiness code. It's a, it's a priest who's written that. Jesus didn't invent it, and that's not unique to Christianity. That's that's central to Judaism. And Leviticus has it, and other ancient Jewish texts have it, and other early Christian texts have it. And this is sort of a common thread that runs through sort of the, the moral visions of, of many ancient Jews and Christians. And so, you know, I know when we get to texts like Leviticus you know, 11 through 16 or whatever, and then in all the sacrificial stuff, it's hard to, to see what that means. It's so foreign to most of us, but the whole, the whole system is predicated around the idea of, uh, and this is something Benjamin Sommer has written about very eloquently, it's the, the Levitical system is all predicated around the desire to be in close proximity to God, and for God to be in close proximity to humanity. And the issue is they're not great roommates. Uh, they have very different uh, hygiene. and God is a neat freak, has high levels of hygiene, and, well, humans are like my children. They're messy and noisy, uh, and, and they sort of raise the anxiety levels of, I guess, in this, in this analogy, and maybe it says a lot, I'm God, um, uh, but I'm the neat freak who's, who can't handle the chaos. That's, the whole Levitical system is about containing the chaos that's inherent to the mortal condition, the mortal condition. And God wants to dwell with humans, and so God has to set up this order and to maintain this order. And, and some of the stuff around ritual impurity is all about maintaining this order so that God, who's a neat freak, doesn't, well, freak out and leave because it's too messy and can't because he can't handle it, um, which I know everybody hates that idea of God not being able to handle something. Uh, but I think the priestly God can't handle chaos and mess. It sort of goes against his constitution. And so all of, all of these rules and regulations aren't because the rules are like, so, I mean, the rules are important, but the goal, as, as Benjamin Summer says, the goal is actually to maintain close proximity to God. It's all about what modern, especially modern Christians will talk about, you know, one's relationship with God. That's what Leviticus is about, uh, ma relational, relational maintenance, so to speak. So uh, really closely intertwined with love of neighbor and love of, and love of God, ultimately. Yeah, actually, Gary Anderson at Notre Dame also yeah. um, used a similar illustration when he was talking about Leviticus in the temple, about God being a neat freak, and he told us to imagine, like, a really messy dorm room. So I do think that that illustration is really helpful. And Did that, he use the language of neat freak, Jen? I'm sorry to interrupt, but did he use the language <laughs> of neat freak? That's, I'm very upset. Uh, I thought I invented this idea. Um, you know, great minds think alike. Okay. And you're oh, all, you, I, I yeah. guess I can take that as a huge yeah. compliment that Gary, I'm thinking like Gary. 
Yeah, yeah, because he made like this exact illustration, but used a college dorm room being all gross oh. and whatnot. And this was an undergrad class, so they all laughed and they really liked it. So that actually, that actually reminds me of something that you brought up in the very beginning of your book that I think is very important and very foundational to um, the system of ritual purity and what you're trying to show in your book. And that is the idea that everything is either pure or impure or profane or impure. So can you talk a little bit more about that? In relation to like you know God, like your yep. great illustration of God as a meat freak. Yep. So there are there are four basic categories in priestly thought in Leviticus, and you can read it really really nicely in Leviticus ten ten, where God tells the Israel's priests, you, they, one of your key jobs is to make distinctions, make a distinction or separate, distinguish between the holy and the profane, and separate between the pure and the impure. And these are four separate and distinct categories. And that often gets confused by uh, readers, lay readers, and clergy and scholars. Um, these are four separate categories. Uh, and you're, something is something or someone is always either holy or profane. And that same someone is also either pure or impure. So there are four categories. You are always two of those four categories. The temple is holy. It's set apart from the regular uh, territory beyond its its boundaries. Um, and we can talk about gradations, but that we don't need to go into gradations of holiness at this point. I don't think everything beyond the beyond the temple is is uh, profane, which is not bad. It's just neutral. It's for regular use, and that's good and fine. Uh, think about the Sabbath, for instance. The Sabbath day is a holy day. That doesn't make uh, Mondays, um, you know, well, Mondays are bad. That's a bad example. Um, Fridays are very good days, uh, even though they're not the Sabbath. Uh, well, Friday evening, uh, that's a bad example too. Shoot, Thursdays are also a good day. Um, they're profane though. You can work on them. The Sabbath is holy. Everything else is for common use. And so those are two categories. So you're either holy, for set apart for particular use, uh, always somehow connected to God, who's the Holy One, or you're profane, and you can be, you or it can be used for common usage. And everything's either pure or impure. Uh, and again, these are two absolutely distinct categories, and pure is not holy, and impure is not profane. So uh, the question is, or the, the issue is, and, and it's very common to become impure, uh, both either ritually or morally. And so uh, any ancient Israelite will be ritually impure at probably numerous times in their lives. Uh, and it's not viewed as a sin. It's not viewed as a problem or as a serious problem. It's something that can be main, uh, sort of contained and disposed of through time and washing. And the key is, if you're in a state of ritual impurity, do not, whatever you do, do not go run off to the temple. Uh, stay away from the temple. Because when you mix the holy and the impure, uh, the cultic sparks start to fly uh, and could lead to a fire. And so that's the issue. Keep them separate. And so if you become ritually impure, you go through the purification processes, and then you can go up to the temple again. So, for instance, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Mary and Jesus undergo ritual purification before she goes up to present Jesus in the temple precincts. Um, because that's what's required. And everything's cool. It's not a sin. She didn't sin. Nobody else sins unless they bring it in willy-nilly into the temple. 
I will maybe I should quickly add that <laughs> it's so complicated because there are different types of purity or impurity, I should say, not purity. Um, there's also moral impurity. And it's the same word that gets used for what we call ritual impurity. Uh, so there might be a bit of problems with our modern terminology, but moral impurity and ritual impurity act differently and are acted upon differently. Um, if you become morally impure, that's, that has to do with sin. Um, but it's not contagious like ritual impurity. And you can actually go to the temple if you're morally impure. Uh, it might make your sacrifices uh, non-efficacious or something along those lines, potentially, but it doesn't lead to the cultic uh, sparks that ritual impurity does. And so there are sort of two distinct forms of purity. One comes from physical uh, substances, ritual impurity. The other one comes from actions. One of them is unavoidable. If you're mortal, you're going to become ritually impure. One of them is, well, at least theoretically avoidable. You never have to sin. That's a choice you've made. And so there are some distinctions between the two that need that keep them relatively distinct. Um, as a follow-up to that, Matt, um, well, one of your chapters is on the uh, the account of the bleeding woman, and um, again, it's it's one of these accounts where we uh, uh, it's often read in in moral terms that this woman mm. must have uh, sinned, um, and so coming to God. Uh, in forgiveness uh, for that and sort of the uh, her condition just being a manifestation without without more categories the the you know these these things of impurity as as being an act or being a condition they they typically don't get sorted through in in common readings right. um, and um, any follow-up in terms of how do how do we understand her condition in, yeah. in those categories so, Chris, you've, you've put your finger on an issue that I think has led to misreadings of the Gospels that then sort of inevitably lead to the idea that Jesus has rejected and abandoned these systems. Uh, if ritual impurity is a sin, Jesus should never want to contract ritual impurity. But he touches the man uh, who's a, who, who has lepra. And the woman who uh, has a genital hemorrhage touches him, and he doesn't get angry or upset about it. Uh, and so some scholars have taken that to say, oh, look, he doesn't care. At the very least, he doesn't, doesn't care about it. It's irrelevant. But it's not about sin, ultimately. There's nothing wrong with contracting ritual impurity. And so if we bracket that and say it's, it's, a, it's a condition which excludes one from entering into uh, holy space, cultic spaces, then um, all we have is someone, in fact, all we have is someone who has this, these conditions who at least I think one aspect of them wanting to get rid of this condition is so that they can go to the temple. And in fact, for instance, so that I'm, Chris, I'm sort of leaving your question, uh, which is maybe unfair. The man who has lepra, Jesus commands him to go to the priests, offer what's required. So he commands him to go to the temple and do Leviticus 14. So, you know, I think that's really important in, 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 the, in the hemorrhaging woman. It frees her up. The text doesn't say it, but it does free her up to participate in uh, the cultic life of Israel again. And so, you know, I think we may forget that. We may not. But ancient readers would have seen that, I think, right away, especially ancient Jewish readers would have seen that right away. Oh, look, this is amazing. Now she can go back. Um, and that's, that's great news. So... Uh, again, any time ritual impurity is removed, it's 
it's uh, a removal of some of the restrictions uh, that keep one from it's like a lock it's like a cultic lockdown if we can if i can run with uh this stupid pandemic um it's a cultic lockdown which we all don't like but if it saves lives it's worth it so that gets that goes back i think to threads nicely with jennifer's earlier question around compassion it would be so non-compassionate if you say oh just go up to the temple don't worry about your condition and you go up and you die the whole point is to protect from that and so you know if you if you buy the rules of the cultic game so to speak the system uh it's it's completely driven by compassion for mortals who are very tenuously located in relation to the holy god who's immortal and whose whose presence is a gift but a um potent gift uh and potentially dangerous gift if approached the wrong way one of my favorite chapters uh, in the book is about leprosy. And normally the common reading is that it's this old timey, very contagious disease um, that they need to be cordoned off. And so Jesus kind of heroically and courageously goes in um, and, and heals lepers. Uh, you know, without better categories, we'd, we just sort of place this and file this under Jesus being uh, compassionate and courageous. Uh, Jesus being awesome. Um, you know, reading your chapter, you've got thoughts on this, uh, and we'd love to hear them. Yeah, that the uh, it's an old and prestigious translation of the Greek word lepra, um, which is what occurs in, in the, the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew in, in Leviticus 13 and 14, and then it appears in the Gospels. Um, and of course, it sounds really good. The Greek is lepra, the English is leprosy. It seems sort of, uh, you know, why even raise the question? It seems like it's right there. Uh, which of course is, you know, uh, bumping into a couple of fallacies at least. Um, but when we look at the word, the Greek word lepra, and when we look at the conditions described in Leviticus 13 and 14, they do not describe what we call leprosy. Um, and the, the easiest way to, to see this is to look at Greek and Roman medical writers uh, who talk about lepra and compare it to some pretty mundane conditions. Uh, so mundane, you know, we would probably not really think about them as serious medical conditions. Uh, well, eczema or eczema, however one pronounces it, um, uh, dandruff, dry scalp, uh, things of this nature, which, you know, I mean, eczema can be pretty bad. Uh, so I don't want to minimize uh, that potential condition. But overall, this is not like a life-threatening condition. Uh, usually there's no pain involved in this. And that's what Greek, Greek and Roman medical writers are talking about. When they want to talk about leprosy, what we know as leprosy, when we think about Mother Teresa and others, they use different vocabulary. They use uh, the Greek word elephantiasis or elephas morbus. And they talk about it as though it's a really recent uh, medical condition. This is something that has only arisen in recent history, kind of like, well, for us, kind of like COVID. We never would have talked about COVID 20 years ago. Uh, I don't think we would have at least. And same with leprosy in the ancient Mediterranean world. It didn't exist until around 200 BCE, we think. Uh, and we have uh, corpses from 200, roughly 200 in Egypt, um, and then later in texts and in, in other, in other uh, remains. But when Leviticus talks about it, it's a minor skin condition. And that's what the Gospels have in mind. And so Jesus is healing a really minor skin, but relatively minor skin condition. 
which raises, of course, the question for us, it's really easy. Of course, you're going to cure leprosy. That's a horrible thing for someone to have. Why would Jesus go around uh, dealing with eczema and dandruff? And we've accidentally camouflaged the, the ritual purity nature of these miracles by superimposing modern medical miracles onto it. So it doesn't remarkably change Jesus's power over these things. That's not the issue, but the issue is it, it covers, it hides from us the fact that Jesus is actually concerned about ritual impurity, even the ritual impurity from minor skin conditions and removes them. And I think that's just a, a really, really cool thing. I'll say just very briefly, um, the, the new Revised Standard Version is coming out with a new translation that's going to have over 20,000 different changes in it, apparently. Uh, I've seen this on social media. And I've been told, I've been in conversation with, with someone who was working on it, and it sounds like they're going to remove leprosy um, because they're now aware it's not. So I hope that actually gets through all the way through the various editorial um, layers and out into the public. But I think that'll help us see what the story is actually about and it puts it in such um in in a different light and it it it, it changes the questions that we have when we see these accounts um you know the the stories that you know were told in in sunday school or that pastors would like to say you know we've got these images of lepers um you know, I, I think of the scene in Braveheart where Richard the Bruce's father is sort of one of these lepers in the community. And, and these are these are images that are hard to shake. But it, it, it definitely sort of it, it changes the questions of what Jesus is doing in his ministry when he's healing lepers. And um, perhaps we can get into demons later, but casting out demons. There's these accounts of what Jesus is doing in his ministry. And without without better categories, we just we just kind of go, oh, that's that's pretty neat, <laughs> and uh, and 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 we're we're sort of uh, deaf to maybe a lot of these other concerns that the gospel writers were almost certainly, I mean, um, you know, had in mind. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's easy to trant when we read something foreign in the gospels, as familiar as they are, are are foreign in the sense they they spring out of a very different world and culture, and it's very easy to translate those into things that aren't foreign to us. Um, and I think that is just, that continually happens. And that's one of the jobs of a biblical scholar is to sort of make, make foreign again um, what we've familiarized and, and perhaps domesticated uh, for our own sentiments and our own uh, theology. And so I mean, it's just, that's a fun, it's a fun job. In relation to the idea of uh, ritual impurity as contagious, Dr. Thiessen, can you talk a little bit more about how Jesus' contagious purity, or I mean, uh, contagious holiness, overwhelms the forces of impurity? Yeah, impurities. So this I didn't talk about when we talked about those four categories. Uh, Jacob Milgram argues, and I, th I think this is without a doubt the case, that there are two of these things are states of being. They don't do anything. They're just the absence of something. Profaneness is just the absence of holiness. Impurity is just the absence of, of impurity. It doesn't do anything. It's not contagious. It's nothing. Uh, it's just the lack of something. But impurity acts as a force. That's why it's contagious. And there are times, not a ton, but there are times when holiness acts as a force in Leviticus and other places very, very explicitly. It can be contagious. So you have to be very careful with the garments of the high priest after he's in the temple. They can't, he can't just go run out and, and uh, 
go down to the local pub for a pint. Uh, it, they have to be contained because they're potent. And so uh, Mark especially frames Jesus as the Holy One of God. And uh, all the Gospels, Jesus is imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit. He is this mobile, um, embodied force of holiness. And it's bumping around out there in a world filled with mortal human beings who are chaotic and messy. They're impure. And at least in the gospel narratives, every time he bumps into a ritually impure person, that holiness is there and available to counteract that opposing force of impurity. And so I think the, the, the case, so this ties in with, with Chris's question about the hemorrhaging woman. Uh, and it's in Luke follows Mark here. Matthew goes a little bit differently. But what I find so fascinating about this story in Mark is the woman who touches Jesus. She doesn't ask for permission. She sneaks up and touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus doesn't give permission to heal her. He doesn't say, oh, lovely faith, you're healed. She's healed automatically. It's, it's like uh, if I walk around on a carpet and have built up static uh, inside, you know, I, I don't know the, the terminology, but I build up static by rubbing my feet on the carpet and then someone touches me. It's not like I've chosen to zap them. I just zap them. And I think that's exactly what's happened. There's this cultic holy zapping from Jesus into the woman. And that holiness is so potent. It's more powerful than her ritual impurity. And it therefore annihilates. It destroys that impurity. Uh, the two can't dwell together. But this holiness is the stronger force, so it drives out the impurity. It's, so it's not like they become, I don't think they become holy per se, but, but the holiness drives out impurity. So then they are purified. So that's why there's that slippage of holiness and purity, if that makes sense. So connecting some of, some of this conversation further into Christian anti-Judaism, what would you say in response to somebody who, you know, regards these Jewish views of purity as being pedantic and, and even primitive, um, and somebody who perhaps would insist that Christianity, let's say, is uh, preferable or better or superior or something because it gets away from these silly rules? Yeah, so much to say. A, virtually everybody in the ancient world had purity rules. Pretty much everybody, it's sort of like the, the, the religious vernacular was that you had to approach the gods in the appropriate way. Now, I guess that doesn't necessarily mean they're not all wrong and outdated and everything else, but it, it's not unique to, to ancient Judaism. I would say early Christians, and, and uh, I, I, I quote this forthcoming book all the time, uh, or referred to all the time, Holger Zellenden, who's at Tübingen now, um, has a book coming out that shows uh, early Christians, many early Christians for a long time, uh, continued on with ideas of cultic purity. And actually that, that you can see it in certain Orthodox Christian traditions and Catholic Christian traditions. And I've even heard that in some Protestant circles, some of these things continue. So there's that. Uh, I would say it's not remarkably different from Christians who say, uh, well, Christians who say guys can't wear ball caps in church uh, or um, other, other things along those lines. Uh, I don't know too many Christians, for instance, who think uh, the, the, uh, the church building is an appropriate place to have sexual intercourse. Um, it doesn't seem to be a normal Christian belief that that's, that's uh, cool. So I think 
you know, we all have purity systems we run with. Ours are maybe much more, they're not well-defined and, and they're, they're, uh, they're learned, but not discussed in those ways. I think, um, you know, growing up when I went to church, we had Sunday evening services in summer in a non-air conditioned building. And I was not allowed to wear shorts, uh, cause apparently my knees were, you know, <laughs> inappropriate for, for the divine vision to see. So, um, my sweaty, my sweaty back was okay, I guess. Anyways, uh, that's, I'm, I'm processing childhood, um, issues right now. Sunday evening services being the biggest one again in this, uh, John, your question really ties back to the, the question of what's the motivating purpose here. And it's an issue. And I think this is a, a, a theology that persists in, uh, Christianity at heart. This is an issue of this, the distinction uh, in the utter difference between the created and the creator, uh, the immortal one and mortals. And to come into close proximity to the immortal one is uh, p- potentially life-giving, but if done wrongly, uh, potentially death-dealing, which we have stories of, of that kind of stuff when God's approached wrongly, when humans act badly in the wrong context. And we have those in the Old Testament in a, in cultic situations and in, in sort of a moral situation with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts who, you know, uh, lie to the Holy spirit and are then whacked. Um, you know, I, I have trouble with that, but it's there. So it's a Christian thing too, I guess I would say. Uh, but the whole point is to sort of teach part of it's to teach people the difference between divine and mortal but it's not, it's not merely a, a pedagogical thing. This is the priestly writer thinks this is just how it is in, in nature. And so it's all about, again, it's all about keeping humans safe. And at the end of the day, it's the, the weight of these purification rules fall most heavily on those who are closest to God, uh, not those who are furthest from God. Non-Jews don't have to follow these things. Why? Well, because they can't actually even go to the temple or go into the temple area. And it falls more heavily on priests and even more heavily on the high priest. Um, so it's all about, you know, tied with greater responsibility and, and burden, if you want to call it that word, uh, is, is, uh, access to, um, the divine presence. So it's, it's, I, I look at that and it sounds to me, there's, there's some like real theological resonances there that makes sense to me, um, and do for Christianity and for, and for Judaism in ways that show it's not some sort of, uh, you know, empty, uh, superstitious, antiquated, uh, nonsense that we can disregard. We disregard it and it's, it, it strips, uh, these texts of their value and it strips us of valuable resources to think about our own faith traditions. I think maybe one good way of trying to get sort of a larger picture on, on the themes of your book is to just talk about what you mean by the forces of death. Yeah. Apart from just being a great, cool part of the title, what is it about uh, some of the themes and threads that you're drawing out that you think are are sort of addressable in terms of death? And then, therefore, what are the uh, the sources of life that your material interacts with? And yeah, so it, this has sort of been implicit in a lot of the answers, but I haven't made it explicit, I don't think. And so I think that's a great question to to raise. I've mentioned there are three sources to ritual impurity. The three sources are corpses, which 
I don't need to explain how that relates to death, uh, obviously. But then the other two do, do need some explanation. Um, the second source is the skin condition or series of skin conditions that in Greek is nicely referred to as lepra. It's not death, a death-dealing disease as a rule. It's not something awful in that, in that sense of leprosy or, or something else. But ancient Jewish writers, all the way from Numbers through Job and into rabbinic literature, constantly seem to link it with death. Um, maybe partly because of the appearance. It kind of looks corpse-like. So the, the title of the chapter is the Jesus and the Walking Dead, um, which is, you know, my one effort to, to make a cultural, modern cultural illusion. These are sort of walking, walking corpse-like people uh, in, in uh, ancient thinking, ancient Jewish thinking specifically. And then the third is, is general discharges of blood and semen, which again, how does that relate to, to death, especially when something like giving birth uh, makes one ritually impure? And uh, I mean, there are lots of different answers one could give here, but I think the, the key point is that um, blood represents life, contains life, perhaps even is life or is the soul, uh, depending which, which author you're looking at. And so any loss of blood is potentially uh, the loss of life. And I would say especially the discharge of genital blood might be a particularly sort of potent, viewed particularly potently. And same with semen. Uh, semen is... Uh, in ancient science, it's concocted, it's whipped blood, uh, frothy blood, ultimately. And so, again, it's sort of a loss of life force when semen's lost, whether in sexual uh, activity or nocturnal emissions or whatever. Uh, and so all of these, so this is something Milgram especially has, I think, correctly identified, stress death or at least mortality, which is what other scholars would say. And so the whole point is, you can't come close to God when you're sort of reeking of death or reeking of mortality. There has to be a certain amount of time and uh, washing to sort of remove yourself far enough from your, you know, sort of imminent mortality to approach immortality. And so all of that talks about uh, ritual impurity and how it relates to the forces of death. And you can tie in the demonic there, which the gospel writers frequently refer to as impure. So related to death. And then the opposite of that, and again, if you think about these two opposing forces of, of impurity and holiness, well, if impurity represents death, intuitively it makes sense that holiness represents life. And so if life is in the blood, and life or blood acts as a, as a ritual detergent in Leviticus and in priestly thought, uh, it's because it contains life force, the life force of an animal. And so the stronger the animal, the stronger the life force, the stronger it functions as a ritual detergent, which this is sort of going beyond the gospels, but I think gets into Christian theology, especially something like Hebrews, which is, you know, ultimately a deeply cultic text. If Jesus is the Holy One of God, he has this potent holiness inside of him. Uh, and then especially after his resurrection, this is now indestructible life in Jesus. His blood is contains indestructible immortal life. Uh, it's tied with bleach, but then like way better than that. It's, it's something that can get any stain out. Um, and so this is the, so that's why, I mean, Jesus contains this life force in his life and then ultimately in his resurrection and defeating death. And, and so uh, that's why the, the, the title, I really wanted to call it initially the Holy One of God and the forces of death. And, um, you know, probably rightly, the publishers who know much more than I do about how to sell a book 
we're like, no one's going to know what the heck the Holy One is. So, but that's ultimately code. Jesus is the Holy One, uh, this potent force of holiness that can drive out and destroy impurity and thus death. And so it's all about this uh, tapping into a larger narrative of, of uh, Israel, Israel's God overcoming the forces of death. Yeah. I, I love that thought about Hebrews, the indestructible life. But what's so curious to me, because uh, I'm working on some stuff related to the Eucharist and alcohol and scripture, is the lack of Eucharistic imagery in Hebrews, especially mm. because this feels so like potent. And then additionally, the author of Hebrews has like a softball lob to him with, with the Melchizedekian typology, because you have potentially the first typology of the Eucharist with the bread and wine uh, yeah. at the blessing of Abram. But um, the author does not draw upon that. Anyways, it's such a curious thing because what you've just set up sounds like the most potent, like Eucharistic theology you could imagine in the New Testament. Yep. And yet we don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I think Hebrews, this is where, this is where, well, uh, John, you would know, especially uh, Dave Moffat has mm -hmm. uh, influenced uh, a lot of my thinking here. Totally. Uh, I mean, he totally. basically taught a Hebrew seminar uh, when I was a PhD student, he was uh, a couple years ahead of me. It's such a fascinating text. I think Hebrews is so focused on the the heavenly cultic temple uh, that the author doesn't want to like mess it up or get confusing with. Well, there's also something happening on Earth, and maybe he doesn't think there is. I don't. I don't quite know. Maybe I don't know what he thinks about about the Eucharist. Um, you know, Paul has no problem thinking about multiple divine bodies. Jesus is resurrected and in heaven. He inhabits humans, flesh and blood humans, and they're a temple. And then, I, I mean, I think it's it's there. It's maybe not there in like the super clearest way, but the idea that the Eucharist is actually the body and blood as well, the flesh and blood or body and blood. And so ingesting it, you're ingesting immortality, mm -hmm. um, the immortal life of Jesus. And so there's sort of three bodies of Jesus in Paul. He's got no problem with that. And that's like so, sort of, again, a, a Benjamin Summer, gods can have multiple bodies. It's cool thing. Hebrews maybe doesn't want to do that because it's so busy trying to be like, we got the earthly temple, which is good and fine. It has its functions. But then there's this super awesome heavenly temple that it's based on where uh, super, super good stuff is happening. Even more potent. Again, it's a, we got ritual detergents on earth. They do their limited things. And then you got this super potent ritual detergent that Jesus has brought into the heavenly temple or tent, uh, I should say. And is it's functioning there. So I wonder if I wonder if that's why that law ball. I haven't I, I've never thought about this before. So I'm really spitballing here and I'm probably out to lunch. But I wonder if that's maybe why there's the law ball in, in Hebrews is like, I'm not playing that game. I'm playing football. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I keep going back and forth as I as I reflect on it. Anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm still scratching my head. I, I do have a final question. Um, sometimes it's so hard for certain people to really come to grips with the Jewishness of Jesus. And I, I'm, I struggle sometimes to, to understand that. Uh, an example that comes to mind is uh, my favorite Canadian Jesus film, Jesus of Montreal. Yeah. Are, yeah. You familiar, are you familiar oh, with yeah. that? Okay. Yeah. I love, uh, I'm, I'm teaching a class on Jesus films. And so I, I love the, you know, the kind of determination to, you know, make this kind of edgier passion play. And yeah. one of the lines that I was struck by is when one of the, one of the characters says, you know, ironically, Jesus wasn't Christian, he was Jewish. And I just find that line so striking 
because to you know it's not ironic and it's not surprising and it's not goofy it's not weird um but yet that's a line that needed to be set and it's a line for you know this late 80s you know catholic setting in which this passion play is taking place apparently it's a line that needed to be said mm-hmm. i'm just wondering if you could speak to as a way to kind of conclude this conversation if you could speak to the struggle that we have with just reckoning properly with the jewishness of jesus yeah, well, I could say a lot. Um, I should probably, I'll, I'll, I'll limit it for sure. Um, and I'll try to be careful. I think it's just super easy to, I, I, I think by and large, we now, you know, everybody says it. It's sort of boilerplate, right? It's like a syllabus where you have to put certain things in about not cheating and everything else. Uh, you don't read through it, you just copy and paste. And that's sort of what we're doing in our books and when we talk. And, and, I think it's, we do it, we have to think carefully about why and how we're doing it. And that's what's so tricky. Um, yeah, Jesus is, so I think there are a couple of dangers. One, I mean, there's a, there's a, is it a Pew survey or a Barna survey in the States about who are the most famous people of these various religions? And when it came to the question of who's, who's the most famous Jew, you know, Jesus was the answer, the top answer, um, which on one level, that's okay. And on another level, it's like, well, that's deeply problematic because it means you actually know nothing about Judaism. Uh, and obviously the majority of the people asked are, are probably Christian. So, but that they don't think Moses or somebody else first is I think also already a problem. And we can see how Jesus then becomes like the right Jew, the correct Jew, which, you know, I've seen even more recently on social media in, in ways that I think are pretty uh, potentially insidious. So I guess there's one danger that way. And the issue is Jesus was a Jew involved in ancient Jewish um, dialogue, disputes, disagreements, conversations. I think they can be ranged from very neutral to, you know, pretty heated, like all of our conversations are. And ancient Jews disagreed about all kinds of different things, and Jesus did too. Um, but the disagreement, when there are disagreements, and not everything was, when there are disagreements, that's just part of the ancient Jewish conversation. And so I think it's really important. But it's also really important not to be like, uh, sort of, what you give with one hand, you take with the other. Jesus was an ancient Jew. Um, he just didn't buy a lot of these things about ancient Judaism that I also don't buy personally, modernly, you know, and that's, I think, the other danger. And so one of the, tr- one of the things I want to do in this book, I do not observe ritual purity. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying one ought to, but I'm not, I'm saying, let's just look at who Jesus is. And let's talk about these gospel depictions, at least, and let them sit for what they are. And maybe we learn new things. Um, and maybe we don't have to, uh, you know, for those who think, you know, Jesus is a moral exemplar or a paradigm or, or the son of God or any of these things, it doesn't mean sort of like a rote um, copying of behavior, but a, a playful reiteration of things. And so I think once we can, once we can let go of, of the idea that, well, everything Jesus did and believed, modern Christians have to do and believe uh, once we have a little more uh, elasticity around that, um, that helps us then see Jesus is an ancient Mediterranean Jew. And that means all kinds of things. And some of those are easy to understand and some of those are not as easy to understand. So uh, I think we're constantly trying to get there. And we're all, and I won't pretend I'm not there or that I'm not, that I don't have these issues. I'm sure I have my own issues. Um, we're all trying to see Jesus for who he was or who the gospel writers say, and we're, we're all falling short like we do in any ancient 
a historical project. Well, Dr. Thiessen, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 